We are starting a new series this morning that's going to go for uh, the next four weeks. And it's entitled um, Road to the Resurrection. And today and tomorrow we're going to look at the event, some of the, just a couple of the events leading up to the resurrection itself. And then uh, Easter morning, obviously, looking at the resurrection. But then to conclude this series the week after, we will look quickly at uh, what does it mean to live post-resurrection. Often we, we celebrate the resurrection of Easter, and then the following week, we just move on as if it didn't take place. And so I, I look forward to these next four weeks, and I hope you can see faintly the cross in that, um, in that graphic, um, I actually wasn't referring to that one yet. <laughs> this is an off day for you, Albert, isn't it? It's okay. Pride comes before the fall. Or is it the other way around? Fall comes before the pride. Whatever. <laughs> um, the picture that he's going to throw up here in a second. Um, as a kid growing up, um, I never was much of a gun person. I'm not a, I'm not a hunter. I'm not a fisherman. And I know the fact that I don't have multiple guns living in the state of Georgia means that I'm less of a man that I really want to be. And I just accept that. It's just, it's just reality. I'm not a gun person. And that may have in part to do with the fact that when I was 11, maybe 10, maybe 12, I, I don't know, my dad had all kinds of guns. And he had this beautiful wooden gun case that had all kinds of rifles and all kinds of handguns. And they were always locked. But it didn't take long for me to figure out where the key was because it was, you know, on top of it. And there's another one underneath it. And I remember as a rebellious child, one day I was all alone in the summer and the temptation got the best of me and I grabbed one of those keys and I unlocked it. And I've told you before that I grew up on a large apple and cherry farm where there were several thousand acres of farmland uh, orchards behind our house. And so nobody's home. I couldn't resist. I grabbed a couple of the handguns, 10, 11 years old. Grabbed some of the ammunition and went for a a three-quarter mile walk, mile walk behind the property and set up some targets and started shooting those handguns. And I was terrified. <laughs> terrified. The first time that the gun went off, and it felt like there, there was a kickback, and it scared me, but it was enticing, and I was scared, and I was eager, and I was scared. And I decided I could probably kill somebody or myself. I should probably stop. So I went back, put everything back in, and I got away with it except for my conscience. And I decided to share with my dad what I had done, and my dad decided to teach me a lesson. And that lesson was to ensure that I wasn't going to sit down for the next week because my backside was so sore because of the power of what I was holding in my hand. And if you look through a rifle, go ahead and now go to that slide, Albert. If you look through a rifle, they have what's called crosshairs. If it has a scope, it has these crosshairs to help you zero in on what you're aiming at. Go to the next slide if you would. And so you can see something from 
several feet to several hundred feet. If it's really powerful, 700 yards maybe. I, I don't know. Um, but those crosshairs narrow in. And if you're familiar with this saying, aim small, miss small. And if you're just aiming at something big, you're going to miss big. But if you're aiming at something really tiny. And so the goal is, if you have one of those scopes, to put your target in the middle of those crosshairs. Well, as we lead up to Easter morning in the resurrection, this is our month to remind ourselves that God the Father had us in his crosshairs. That the target was on you. It was on me. And he had every right to pull that trigger. He had every right to, to zoom in and to discipline us. But instead, as we're going to be reminding ourselves all months, he took those crosshairs and took them off of us and put his son there instead. And then he zoomed in on those crosshairs and the passage we're going to read this morning is such a great reminder that the events leading up to the celebration of Easter was not a joyful, happy time. In the passage we're going to look at this morning, we're going to see that the crosshairs are zeroing in on the Son of God, the Son of Man. And he felt and anguished through tremendous distress and pain. You're not in the crosshairs if you are his. Uh, Let me pray, and then we're going to read this text and get into the message. Father, we come before you and acknowledge that some of us may not want to be here this morning, or we come and we acknowledge that we have drifted from you that we don't think of you, that you are not our heart's desire, that you are not our first love. And so we ask this morning as we look at the person of Jesus on this road to resurrection that your spirit would work tenderly and graciously and powerfully in us and that you would redirect us to who you are and what your purpose is for us. Father, may your word speak boldly and powerfully in a way that only it can do. May we quickly forget anything that I say, but may your, by the power of your Spirit, whisper into our ears and remind us of how much you love us by what you have done for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Mark chapter 14, verses 20, um, 26 through 42. Mark 14, 26. Either follow along in, this, in your own Bible or up on the screen behind me. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though all will fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you this, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. 
And they all said the same thing. And they went to a place called Gethsemane, and they said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter, James, and John, and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little further, he fell on the ground and he prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and he found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough that the hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. The context of this particular passage in Mark immediately follows the beauty and the blessing of the the institution of the Lord's Supper where Jesus is with his disciples and he for the first time shares with them the bread and the wine and the beauty and the symbolism of that and what it means for him as their Savior to feed them, yes, physically with a a little bit of uh, bread and wine, but but the greater feeding them spiritually and, and nourishing their heart. That picture that sets this up is a, is a constant reminder for you and I as we celebrate the Lord's Supper and as we'll do on Easter morning, that that event itself just reminds us already, but so much more to come. It reminds us as we walk away from that table, um, it's incomplete. It's not fulfilled yet. We're getting a small taste But at some point, because of the resurrection, yes, because of the cross, but because even more so of the resurrection, we will taste it in its fullness at some point. There are three pictures that I want to look at as Jesus is walking on this road to the resurrection. And the passage that we looked at this morning, just those two little different what, what they call, and you can, you can forget this, but what they call pericopes, two different little sections that, that go together but yet also could stand apart. In those two little sections, as we see Jesus walking to the road, uh, walking on this road to the resurrection, uh, there are three pictures that I want to look at with you. And the first picture that we see is this picture of necessity. This road to the resurrection, we are reminded that there is a picture that we see, that we take in, that we taste, that we experience. It's a picture of necessity. Jesus must do this. We're told uh, by Jesus' own words, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. 
I don't know, you may or may not know this, but Jesus is actually quoting a passage in the Old Testament in the book of Zechariah where we're told, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts, Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. Jesus knows. He's already self-identified. I am the good shepherd. He's prophesied about it. He knows the Old Testament. He knows that the shepherd that Zechariah is referring to is him. He knows the hour is coming where because of necessity, he will be struck. He's also familiar with um, Isaiah 53. And if you're not familiar with this passage, read it. Read it every day as we lead up to the Good Friday service, and it will be read at that service. Read this passage, become familiar with it. But Jesus knew these words that were, that were prophesied some 700 years earlier, where Isaiah said, as he's talking about the coming Messiah, surely he's borne our griefs and he's carried our sorrows, yet he, we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. Because there's a certain necessity involved, Jesus knows this is why I've come. I've come to be struck. And as a result of that, he's looking at his disciples who are saying to him, we will not go away. You will fall away. You will walk away from me. You will deny me. The necessity of the cross, which is on this road to the resurrection, the necessity of the cross was manifested in his disciples as he's speaking to them. Think think of this arrogance. Think of what they say as Peter says to him, even though everyone will fall away, I will not. And Jesus, who is all-knowing and omniscient, I'm sure is sitting there and looking at him going, oh, yes, you will. And oh, by the way, it's, it's going to be soon, within hours, Peter. And then they, necess- they show the necessity of the cross by what they do in the second part that we read, where Jesus takes them out um, and he, he's going to pray. And on three occasions, Jesus has to come back to them and say what? Well, thank you for praying. Thank you for standing in the gap with me. Thank you for your faithfulness. It isn't what he says. He looks at him, and I'm sure with a great mixture of sadness and anger and empathy. Guys, what are you doing? Why are you sleeping? Couldn't you just pray just a little bit while I'm over here agonizing? And that reminds us of what? You've heard me say this, I think, hundreds of times, and I hope it's, I hope it's in your vocabulary. What you and I could not and cannot do, Jesus came to do for us. And so we see on this road to the resurrection a picture of necessity because his disciples who were with him in the flesh 
failed him. How much more will you and I? And so we see this picture in the events of this month remind us Jesus came to bear the cross and to bear the weight of his Father's wrath because that's what I deserved. And so the road to the resurrection, that picture has the cross in the background, but it is so, so necessary. The second picture that we see um, in this passage of Scripture that we read is this picture of hope. There's a picture of necessity that Jesus knows that he's going to be struck and that he's smitten by man. But there's also a picture of great hope in this passage. I I hope you saw it. In verse 28, he says, But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. After I am raised up. He's on this road to the resurrection. He knows that between he and the resurrection is the cross, where he knows the pure agony that he's going to experience, but he reminds them and says to them, but afterwards I'm going to be raised up. The disciples had their eyes fixed on just the immediate here and now and what was going on around them. And Jesus had his eye on that, but he also had his eye on the bigger picture. Jesus, when he says, but when I will be raised up, he's referring to in in the book, in the Gospel of John, Jesus says in chapter 2, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. You've heard, this, you've heard me say this as well, and I'm sure you heard it uh, through the original speaker himself. And Billy Graham used to love to say, as he talked about the reality and the pain of this life, he used to always attach to that. But, I've read the end of the book. I've read the last chapter. And it turns out good for us. Jesus has his eye on this in the midst of the anguish that he's about to suffer. But I will be raised up. What, what, is, what does that have to do with us? If Jesus really was raised from the dead, then you and I as well have hope that God the Father was satisfied with the sacrifice on that cross. If he was just left in the grave and if he was never seen by any other witnesses, and it was hundreds of them, but if he was not seen by any of them, then his sacrifice was done in vain. But because we believe those words that we'll say again and again on Easter morning, he is not here. He has risen. And because he's risen, he has hope. And because he's risen, you and I have hope. His sacrifice was sufficient. And because his sacrifice was sufficient, for those of us who trust in Christ, our sins are wiped away. They're gone. The scriptures tell us as far as the east is from the west, so far have I removed my transgressions from you. 
people, that should bring hope to our souls. That should make us a people that go through every day more hopeful than the ones who are, are living with a sense of blind hope. We have, as Peter says, we have a hope that is, it's decided, it's living. We have this hope that while we live in the here and now, that we too may have joy and peace. Because we know when I'm raised up, because we know and we believe by faith that that happened, we have this ability not to be locked in in our circumstances and to bathe in the joy and the peace that Christ has given us. We're told that when we become his children, we are at peace with him. And then we're able to have peace with one another. Because he had hope in his resurrection, and because it actually did happen, you and I have hope for a future resurrection as well. Death has no sting for us. When loved ones and we too someday will stand in those shoes, the valley of the shadow of death, we do so with a sense of hopefulness that we too will be raised up. Second Corinthians chapter 4 tells us, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will also, or will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. May God, may God by his grace give us a sense of redirecting our perspective. That we live in the hope, in the peace that we have now, in the hope that is to come. Years ago, National Geographic published an article. There was a great forest fire in Yellowstone National Park. And when the fire, when the fire was finally um, put out and tamed down and it was safe, uh, several park rangers were walking through the park assessing the damage. And one of them wrote a story, and it ended up, I believe, in uh, Time Magazine. But one of them uh, wrote this story, and it said, When one ranger found a bird of which nothing was left of that bird except the carbonized, petrified shell covered in ashes, huddled at the base of a tree. Somewhat sickened by the eerie sight, the ranger knocked the bird over with a stick. And as soon as he did that, three tiny little chicks scurried out from under their dead mother's wings. When the blaze had arrived, the mother had remained steadfast instead of running. Because she had been willing to die, those under the cover of her wings lived. I hope, I hope that brings into mind the picture of what Jesus cried out, or uh, Jeremiah cried out, O Jerusalem, O Jerusalem. And then Jesus says it, I long to gather you uh, as a hen gathers her children. Because of the necessity of the cross on the road to the resurrection, and because there's hope, we exist on a daily basis. I know this sounds cheesy, but it's biblical. That we live in a forest fire. And Jesus spreads his wings out over us. And he covers us. And he loved you. He loved me enough to suffer death. 
Why? Because he knew that he was going to be raised up again. He knew that this was the Father's will. Here's the third picture that we see in this passage is a picture of authenticity. We see a picture of necessity. Jesus had to go to the cross. We see a picture uh, of hope. And then lastly, we see this picture of authenticity. The gospel is not like what you and I attempt at times to make it seem like to our non-Christian friends, where we attempt to make the gospel uh, palatable or we over-spiritualize it. And, And if you're involved in our circles, we're good at this. We're not good at palatizing it to our our non-Christian friends. We over-spiritualize it. And we make it sound like we're this great warrior. When in fact we know the truth that we are Peter. And we see here this picture of authenticity where Jesus himself in verse 33, he took with him Peter and James and John and he began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little further, he fell to the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. In those verses, we see this beautiful picture that Jesus, yes, he's fully God, but we see this beautiful picture that Jesus is fully man. We also see and we understand Sometimes there are worse things than death itself. And Jesus knows what's coming. And we're told that he is greatly distressed and troubled. I came across a quote this week by Sinclair Ferguson who suggested that the language here used, greatly distressed and troubled, Ferguson said that this language conveys a message of one who is far away from home and feels abandoned longing for companionship, but finding none. And we want to over-spiritualize and say, no, 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 Jesus, the Son of Man, didn't, he didn't experience those emotions. Truth is, we see here this picture of him being greatly distressed and in anguish and falling to the ground, and we come to this realization, there are many people throughout history, throughout church history, who faced death, I don't want to use the word more courageously, but they faced death with less anguish than what we see here with Jesus. Don't, please, don't, don't stop listening. Don't cut me off. We see here in the passage the words that I've read uh, for you. C- consider just for a second this example of... Um, uh, Polycarp. Polycarp, who was a bishop from Smyrna as an early Christian leader, near the end of his life, he was taken before a magistrate and he was told that he would be burned at the stake if he did not recant his faith in Christ. And the magistrate said, in effect, I will give you one more chance. You can reject Christianity. You can recant and you can avoid execution. And there were several witnesses there who heard this, and they wrote down the words of what Polycarp said. The fire that you threaten burns but just for an hour and is quenched quenched after just a little time. You do not know the fire of the coming judgment. But why do you delay? Come and do what you will. 
Those are the words of Polycarp. And here we're told in the scriptures that Jesus was in great anguish and he fell and he pleaded with with the Father, take this cup from me. But, but not my will, but may your will. Consider one more example of two guys, Nicholas Ridley and Hugh Latimer, who were burned at the stake for their faith in, in Oxford, England in 1555. They were tied side by side, and when the fire was lit at their feet, Latimer Ridley said these, uh, Latimer said these words, Hugh, Hugh Latimer, Be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man we shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England, in England as I trust it will never be put out. <laughs> in other words, brother, we're starting something here and, and we're going to be lit on fire, but this is by God's grace and it's going to start a movement of his grace. <clears throat> Why is Jesus in such anguish? Why is he pleading with the Father as he's on the ground praying, take this cup from me. Why is he pleading with that? Because as I said just a few minutes ago, there are worse things than death itself. And Jesus knows as he says, take this cup from me. He knows that in that cup, as the Old Testament symbolized for us over and over, Jesus knew that the cup that he's referring to is this cup of God's wrath. That when he went to the cross, he wasn't going to the cross just simply to be executed, as Polycarp was, as Latimer was. He wasn't just going to transition from death or, uh, uh, from life to death. He knew that as he went in, in his, with these words of authenticity, remove this cup from me, he knew that he was going to be bearing the wrath of God as we're told again in the book of Isaiah, chapter 53, that God the Father crushed his son on the cross with the weight of the sin of mankind, with the weight of your sin and my sin. And connected to that cup of wrath, Jesus knew I'm not just bearing punishment from the Father, but I'm going to be separated. And it may only be for a time of of three days, two to three days, but I am going to be separated from the Father. And that light that existed will be quenched. And because of that, it was too much to bear. And you and I know what it would be like to say, I would give my life for one of my children. If I had to jump in the front of a, of a mama grizzly bear to protect my children, I would do so without thinking. And I know you would as well. But that's, that's not comparing apples and oranges. <laughs> there are some things greater than death. And that which is greater than death in this passage that we read on this road to the resurrection is bearing the full weight of God's wrath. Bearing separation. He knew he was about to be abandoned to the grave. 
And this is a, this is a beautiful part of the gospel. And, and this can become language for us to start conversations with those who don't know the gospel. And but you can just tell as you interact with them and talk to them, their hearts are wrecked. And we can come to them and say, did, did you know that Jesus was abandoned so that you wouldn't have to be? There's one who wants to bring you into his, his family. Kent Hughes, um, an author that I love to read, uh, a friend of Jim's, a friend of my oldest son's up in Philadelphia, Kent Hughes said this uh, about what Jesus was going through. As a man, he had a human will and voluntarily limited knowledge. His prayer was not to do something other than the Father's will, but he did pray that if there was a possibility of fulfilling his messianic mission without the cross, he would opt for that. Jesus, if there's an, or Father, if there's another way to, to accomplish this, sign me up. As a man, Christ cried for escape, but he also desired the Father's will even more. Jonathan Edwards tells us this. In one of his sermons in the Garden of Gethsemane, um, he uses, Jonathan says this, the mouth of the furnace that Jesus was looking into and stand in view its raging flames and see the glowing of its heat that he might know where he was going and what he was about to suffer. So on this road to the resurrection, as it gets closer and closer and he knows that he's about to be arrested and then tried and then crucified, we see this authenticity in his voice and you see it in his heart. And this too should be the cry of our hearts. Father, not my will, but yours. You know that I long to escape the pain of this world. I long to escape the embarrassment of the gospel. I long to escape, you fill in the blank but not my, not my will. May your will be done. What do we do with this? Just three uh, quick takeaways. Takeaway number one, just simply, and, and I hope you've caught on by now that I, I weave this word into every message, whether it's in the message itself or it's in one of the points of applications, and it's just simply this, rest. Rest in the truth because it is finished. And we are a people in today's culture, in today's world, where we don't know how to rest. We don't rest in our minds because we're busy trying to earn and re-earn and reaffirm, God, you do love me, right? I'm trying harder, I promise. I'm fasting, I'm praying more, I'm reading the Bible more. I'm even attempting to share the gospel. God, I promise, I promise. And the gospel reminds us, rest it is finished because of the necessity of the cross. Second takeaway is readjust your eyes. Readjust our eyes. Take our eyes off the here and now and get a glimpse of what is to come. I love what Mark shared last week, Mackenzie's dad, who preached for us. 
And he said he had to drive up to the state of the Holy Land, Michigan, um, to go on a work trip. And they forced him to drive up in this, this cargo van. And if you remember how he told the story, he didn't want to go in the cargo van. But as he was listening, and these were his words, as he was listening to worship music and as he got closer to Michigan, he said it, he felt like the presence of the Lord, the glory of the Lord just took residence up in the van. And it changed him and it changed his perspective. Readjust our eyes. What, what was the focus of the disciples? When Jesus says to them, and if he's the king of creation, he probably knows what he's talking about. You will fall away. Not me. Won't do it. That those are eyes that are on ourself and our pride and our self-effort, our self-reliance. We're told in the scriptures in the New Testament, throw our eyes, cast our eyes, put our eyes on Jesus, the perfecter of our faith. Readjust it. I promise you, if not just a few of you, I promise all of us in this room this morning, we need to readjust our eyes. I love the words of uh, Bob Newman. Was it Bob Newman who was the Newhart? Bob Newhart did a counseling session with a lady and he said, you know, $5. Counseling session is only going to last five minutes. I have two words for you. Stop it. Stop it. (laughs) Readjust your eyes. Take them off the here and now. Here's the third takeaway. Learn to pray. Really pray. Let's, let's just be honest and confess. We're awful at it. We're awful at it because of this camp that we live in and we overemphasize at times our resting in the sovereignty of God and we forget how to pray. We're awful at it because we live in a culture here in America where we are so comfortable, we are so blessed that we simply, we don't need to pray. And Jesus is modeling for us here this incredible wrestling match where he enters into communion. It's a deeper level of communion with the Father and he's praying. He gives us a model of how to pray lays it out, take this, remove this. He pleads from his heart's desire. But then as a part of that prayer, not my will, but may your will be done. So he's authentic, he's honest. But then he's also submissive and he's obedient. And we're told in another gospel story that that in this particular prayer that he was wrestling through the coming wrath so much that his sweat turned into blood as it came out of him. Prayer is a wrestling match with the big issues of life. It's about a prolonged time remaining still in the presence of God, away from the pressures of life's busy round of activities. Here's what I'm pleading, that we would become as a people of God. Yes, that we would say our prayers as we're driving in the car and traffic is busy. Pray that you don't become victim of road rage or become the perpetrator of road rage. 
Pray as you're working, sitting at your desk or whatever it is that you do, but also learn this habit, develop this habit of intentional time that's set aside where I don't know how to do this and I stink at it, but I want to go sit and I want to be still before the Father, knowing that Jesus is interceding for us and with us. Prayer is what? Prayer is a learned behavior. How do we know that? Jesus taught his disciples to pray. It's not natural in us. We don't come out of the womb knowing how to pray. We don't enter into the kingdom of God in the here and now with a born-again heart knowing how to pray. Set aside time as we're on this road to the resurrection. Jesus, teach me how to pray. And know this, Hebrews 5, do so knowing and clinging to these words. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Jesus was fully God. And he knew the value of going to his father and saying, help me. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your mercy to us. God, this month as we walk down this road to the resurrection, would you increase the depth of our understanding of your Son, the depth of the love that you have for us, his obedience, his willingness to suffer and agonize for us. Father, would you transform our hearts and minds? Renew us with your Spirit. Fill us with that Spirit that we might live for your glory and that we might live in a way that draws other. They see you in us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.